Hey, this is Katie, and you're tuned in to Reskillians, a podcast about skills, the resilience they bring, and living closer to the ground so we don't have quite so far to fall if our fragile modern systems fail us. These waveforms are rising and falling on Jara people's country, unceded and unbelievably beautiful lands in central Victoria. For the last few weeks, I've been doing a lot of squinting and pointing. I'm trying to hone my sense of direction, calibrate my internal compass. At least once a day, and especially when I'm in new places, I ask myself and whoever happens to be around, all right, which way is north? We squint and we point using the position of the sun and the maps in our heads to make an educated guess. Pretty obvious, right? But just to ensure accuracy, I've been whipping out my phone and checking the Compass app. And to my horror, I'm consistently wrong, off by a mile and 90 degrees. What I thought was north shows as west, east as south, familiar rivers and ridges and roads warped by this new and troubling information. Sure, I did wonder if my phone was broken, but fiddling with the settings and downloading different apps produced the same result. So I hung my head and accepted directional defeat. This morning at the farmer's market, I played the Point North game with some friends who flat out refused to believe my phone's verdict. With the sun and the land and good sense on their side, plus two impartial compasses, it was clear that my device had been gaslighting me. This experience got me asking some serious questions. Like, why am I so quick to trust technology despite evidence to the contrary from my eyes and gut and whiskers? And where else does modern culture and its magnificent machines lead us astray? We're told that the direction of progress is up, that time marches on, that money is power, that humans are greedy, that good and bad exist, that working yourself to the bone is noble, unless you're a lowly labourer, that big problems require big solutions, that emergencies need speed, that paradoxes are impossible, and that everything started with a big, loud, violent bang. What if instead we saw the big bang as a seed, the everything seed, as Carol Martin-Yako writes? What if we took a view like the Amira people of the central Andes who see the past as ahead and the future as behind, Because what's ahead of you can be seen and understood while the future is unknown behind you in the mystery. So many unexamined truths form our mental scaffolding and it's really fun to dismantle them every once in a while, even if you're perched on top. Today's guest, Dr. Yin Paradis, is a loving terror downer of such teetering assumptions, a recalibrator of compasses, a person I've been lucky enough to run into, without hurting myself, on multiple occasions. First on a mountain, then in a valley, once in a yarning circle, and now in the ether for this virtual conversation. Yin is an Aboriginal Asian Anglo-Australian conducting deep research on racism and anti-racism, as well as teaching Indigenous knowledges and decoloniality. Despite inhabiting a comfortable burrow in academia as the Chair of Race Relations at Deakin University, he's also an anarchist, an animist, a trickster, a disruptor, and a sage voice on so many topics that Resilience is interested in. This is one of those convos that creeps up on you, that builds in energy and intensity and quietly blows shit apart. 
We discuss the aliveness of everything, the possibility in passivity, the nature of prayer, the perils of intentional communities, and how Yin and his kin and Adam Kara are doing things differently. We talk about karma yoga, eldering, sociocracy, and little bits of carrot floating in the soup of consciousness. I loved my time with Yin and welcome you in to this quietly radical conversation. I am curious to know how you like to introduce yourself because I have a bunch of A words. It's like animist, <laughs> anarchist, actionist. You forgot avid alliterator. <laughs> <laughs> I get in trouble for that. I get in trouble from uh, my partner, Victoria, for too much. It's like a addiction to alliteration or something. Yeah. Why is alliteration so juicy? I just fall back on it constantly. Yeah, I don't know. There's something just very satisfying about... Um, nourishing about just uh, the wordplay of it. Simple enough sort of thing, but it feels, it just feels right to do, yeah. Maybe it's one of those limitations that makes you more creative in your expression and somehow like a meaning emerges that you didn't intend. And that's a lot easier to do than haikus, so, yeah. (laughs) Do you have a haiku, a professional haiku on LinkedIn? (laughs) No, no. I know you can get AIs to do all of it for you these days, but I I prefer not, not to do that. Yeah, so my latest is the whole animist, um, anarchist, actionist. I saw someone use the word actionist quite recently and I thought "Ah, it's a good conversation starter for the nature of activism and what that means, yeah. Mm, So you're going with that at the moment but it's more of a you have a transient set of identifying words. It changes a fair bit, yeah. Yeah, well... Is there anything you want to say to kind of preface the conversation so people know who you are and what you're about or are you happy to hold some mystery? I'm a Wakaya man and my mob come from up near the Gulf of Carpentaria where my grandmother was born and I myself and my mother were born in Townsville. I lived there till I was nine and then I moved to Darwin and I grew up in Darwin. I lived in Darwin for 20 years. And uh, then about 15, 16 years ago, I moved to the Melbourne or Nam area and I've been enjoying the mostly cooler weather ever since. Mm-hmm. Not so much yeah. today. <laughs> yeah. It's, I've got a bead of sweat dripping down into the crevasse of my elbow. So <laughs> that's quite a nice feeling. So, yeah, I mean, can you briefly describe what the animist, anarchist, activist um, actionist, sorry, words mean. And I did say activist then accidentally, but I would love to hear your thoughts on whether you do consider yourself an activist. Yeah, it's interesting uh, question. So animism is a very much a core experience of uh, Indigenous peoples around the world. You know, we just, we feel like and we experience the cosmos as a place that's alive, you know, a whole the whole shebang from the famous rocks are alive uh, controversial statement to all the other things that we actually are increasingly understanding as, as animate, like trees, you know, the increasing intelligence and um, vocabulary and grammar of trees, communication that only a few decades ago would have been laughable, you know, by Western science. So the world is alive, very important to me. Um, anarchism is a, a, a very much Indigenous type of uh, political project as well. You know, you could easily 
draw parallels between the way Indigenous peoples organise socially and, and anarchist principles. So I quite like that egalitarian, distributed power, um, communal action aspects of anarchist philosophies and po political approaches. And I do, I do feel uh, like an activist, but actually at the moment we're doing a uh, seminar series and coming up in a couple of weeks at uh, Black Sparks Books, there's a, there'll be a talk that we're doing on animism and activism, me and Victoria. And there's, I guess, a question of uh, what is activism? Does it have to be about uh, protests and um, resistance to the system itself or can it be a more a quieter activism that's about growing alternative ways of and cultivating alternative ways of knowing, being and doing. So I feel like more of that sort of quiet activist, I guess, and I use the term actionist to, to indicate, I guess, just getting on with trying to live otherwise rather than this sense of trying to tear down a system or to convince a system that uh, it should transform or retire or what have you. That's a, a lot of activism seems to me a kind of a direct um, reaction rather than being more kind of um, parallel forms of, of refusal to participate. They all, they all come under a broader sense, but that's why I used the actionist label as a way of starting a conversation about what is activism. I think Carol Sanford is someone who talked a lot about direct action versus indirect action and, again, in the, ways, in the way that your sentiments and offerings online and in person often do for me just explodes my brain. It's like what you mean there's another way to do things that isn't pushing back and reacting and tearing down, as you say, but there are these other ways of working. So I really value that extremely disruptive idea that, we can be more, we can be indirect and subtle and quiet. So you're the Chair of Race Relations at Deakin. What does that mean? What are you doing in that role? Well, that's a role um, that gestures towards my research on racism and anti-racism, cultural competency, intercultural understanding, those sorts of ideas. And um, so I'm doing that sort of research alongside teaching and also research on Indigenous perspectives and decolonisation. So it all comes pretty well under that. It's a, it's a kind of a, a fairly American, I guess, 1960s, 70s term, race relations. There would be other professors of race relations in the US but none in Australia. And I just picked it because it was kind of a little bit strange and quirky and... Uh, it's a progressive kind of leftist project, the idea of race relations, and I, I want to gesture towards that and also kind of explode it at the same time. What are you working on at the moment? Is there something that's really juicy and alive that you're discovering through this research? Look, the stuff that really uh, uh, gets me up in the morning and I'm passionate about is that is the teaching and the research I do on Indigenous knowledges, really, and perspectives and, and decolonisation, so... Yeah, I've got a bunch of projects on on racism and anti-racism in various places, uh, spheres of life. But um, the the teaching opportunities are very uh, 
much a, a gift to, as you said before, people tend to be quite blown away by some of the ideas, the deeper understandings of how Indigenous cultures work and also how our modern cultures work and the, and the kind of uh, assumptions that underpin them. And sometimes I write, you know, papers. I just wrote a paper with a colleague about uh, basically Aboriginal approaches to spirituality in a country as a form of contemplative religious practice. And those are really, really fun too. That all, all the stuff where we try and delve deeper into the interplay between modernity and what I call primal or Indigenous cultures and perspectives. How do you go with being in that institution, that formal academic setting when you are such a disruptor and you are such a trickster and someone who likes to really push the boundaries and uh, not necessarily fall into line? How are you, how do you keep your job? Yeah. I know a lot of people find academia to be very challenging. Uh, I think what I've done is I've somehow excavated a niche and uh, almost buried myself alive. I think just my my nostrils are kind of showing through <laughs> so I can breathe. So people wander past me on the academic landscape and they don't even really know that I'm there. And uh, occasionally I pop my head and shoulders up to have a quick Zoom meeting with my boss every six months and he seems happy with all the grants and publications. In some ways the um, intense commercialised, corporatised kind of quantification of life in academia is actually helpful because as long as you tick a few boxes, no one actually notices what else you do. Good to know. Hmm. And what led you down that path as opposed to the million and one other possibilities that life would have presented to you? Well, I feel very much uh, like a, a very small being you know, as a, an extension of vaster titanic forces of the universe so I don't I don't feel like I've had a great deal of choice I just feel buffeted by the the um, vagaries of of existence and uh, I have always been interested in in research and academia from an early age I, I read a lot of uh, science fiction books and I wanted to be a theoretical physicist and I did I did start studying theoretical physics at, uh, as an undergrad at university and then things just happened and suddenly I was here and suddenly I was there and uh, my parents thought it would be a good idea for me to get a job, which I didn't really appreciate the idea of much. But I found this cadetship and I ended up working at the Australian Bureau of Statistics and those were the first days of writing kind of national reports on the health and welfare of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So then I became really interested in that that health inequality stuff and I wanted to dig deeper to the causes of health inequalities and I realised that racism was a powerful determinant of health, so I did a PhD on that. And then I just kept sort of digging deeper into the roots of things and below racism is is colonisation and then what's the answer to that? Well, there's decolonisation and what are examples of societies that live differently? Well, there's all this rich detail of Indigenous cultures um, that I needed to learn more about because I just certainly didn't know as much as my ancestors and I still don't have nearly that much knowledge. So it just became a kind of uh, one of those paths in the forest you just get 
distracted and you wander off in a new direction, I guess. Yeah, it brings up two questions for me that are quite dissimilar. So I'll ask you one and then ask you the other if I remember. But can you go a little bit deeper into the connection between racism? I mean, I've heard about the effects of of, of stigma and people's well-being and I feel like there's still um, a bit of a hazy connection between, um, yeah, things like racism and our physical vigour and well-being and ability to actually function in this world yeah yeah sure it's just a classic case of the cartesian mind body divide really this 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 modern idea that the mind is separate from the body which is separate from the spirit and it's all really just spirit substance or mind material intertwined woven like a a kind of a fabric and so yeah our experiences of particularly as humans humans are very sociable creatures and uh, forms of exclusion and stigma and uh, hierarchical forms of inferiority, they just they hit us really hard as humans. And the studies show that those sort of social sufferings are much more dangerous and much more damaging than physical abuse. Social abuse is more dangerous to us. And so racism is like that and impacts, you know, various hormonal balances in the body, the blood pressure that we have, um, immune system functioning, heart health, things that affect ageing in the body, cellular reproduction type of things. So there's, there's been studies on all these types of uh, essentially racism as a form of stress and there's a lot of literature already on, on the stress effects on the body that build up over time and lead to uh, various forms of disease and ill health. And also the problem with stress, of course, is people have to cope. And this modernity is kind of like a novelty box of, uh, not of chocolates, but of, uh, well, chocolates is one of them, but of uh, addictions and cravings. Uh, and um, we, are, we are easily called to cope through our kind of misplaced longings for things like chocolate and sugar and social media likes and so forth yeah and that's bad for your health too because a lot of what we do in modern societies just isn't very very nourishing yeah well said so a subsidiary question that isn't the other question knowing all of this yin how do you not become a rabid perfectionist about insulating yourself against those kind of stresses so you live forever well there's always the temptation to seal yourself off hermetically from the world. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem is that oh, we are inherently intertwined with all of creation. There's no essential difference between us and any other part of the universe. It's all just a kind of blended continuum that appears to be thingified and therefore distinct. So it's a false, uh, it's a false attempt. It's, um, I guess uh, there's been a bit of discussion at our talk on activism and animism about spiritual bypassing and that would definitely be one of those things if you try to escape. So, uh, and of course living forever is a very foolish idea and takes us out of the life-death life cycles of of the world. But having said that, I do live on a 50-acre on a <clears throat> homestead and it does feel like a, a different world, a kind of a, a sanctuary and a safe haven from the madness of modernity and uh, 
yeah, I can't survive long in um, large shopping centres, so it makes sense. Even though they do everything to trap you in there so you'll be the mouse who continuously eats the cheese. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So when when you're just talking about the thingification, yeah, are we just consciousness thingified? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, the cosmos is basically very large soup of consciousness that um, sometimes seems to have little bits of carrot floating in it. That's us. Are you sure you're not describing big a big vomit? <laughs> it could also be vomit too because, you know, it's all connected. We've got to compost our own shit. We've got to regurgitate our, our kind of <laughs> our issues and our predicaments, yeah. Yeah, the little chunks of corn. All right. The last question I have in the bank, um, you mentioned not actually feeling that in control of your life path not making those decisions consciously rather being buffeted by the prevailing winds of whatever will happen. Um, you also said once around a campfire on the NBLT retreat, I think I remember this correctly, you were talking about our kind of Western approach to the attainment of knowledge and the striving and the questing for for, for understanding and and smartness. And I think you kind of countered that with, well, actually, the other perspective or maybe an Indigenous lens on that is your gifted knowledge or knowledge is bestowed upon you when you're ripe and ready for it, either from elders or from the cosmos. Am I remembering that correctly? It sounds about right, yeah. It's a, it's a sense of, and this is what we're getting at with this talking about animism and activism, is that it's a question, something like, what if passivity was, was, wasn't the opposite of activity but a, a kind of activity in itself, a, a certain openness and receptivity that happens when you kind of relinqu- relinquish a sense of certainty and mastery and control and that creates a kind of context or cultivates a context where you can actually channel and catalyse change for want of a better word or growth or increase of complexity and connection and relationality and kinship these are the kind of um the point of the of the cosmos if there is such a thing points are very uh modern in some ways is to 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 manifest more beauty in existence and and those um things that that uh make us sort of focus on our own agency can take us away from all the wisdom that's out there if we pay attention to the conduct of the stars and the moon and the sun and the mountains and the rivers and all the other animals and plants. Humans are a very uh, a very young species and we have a lot of elders uh, all around us in the form of all those creatures that I mentioned and we have a lot to learn from them. Yeah, I think the fear of dropping into a, a more passive and receptive state is that you just become an invertebrate, wobbly jellyfish, you know. What what happens when you do surrender like that? There's a fear of that, yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I think so, yeah. For me, for sure. I think there is, yeah. And uh, 
Yeah, I guess it goes along with our, our modern fear of, uh, of death as well, and what happens when we die. And it's all about cycles, yeah. We have cycles of focused kind of driven attention and then we have other aspects or, or periods where we're receiving knowledge and wisdom. And as with all things, it's a balance and I just feel like that modern societies are out of balance, not that there's there's particular ways that are inherently wrong in and of themselves. It's just that they're not really balanced with the other the other ways of doing things. And um, yeah, I certainly learn a lot when I remember to surrender and uh, relinquish and learn from my my environment what I need to know. So you're very welcome to undermine the intention of this podcast with your answer because sometimes I wonder if asking people a bunch of questions through a filter of there's this big problem and what do you think about this and what are the solutions, I I do really at times wonder if it's all just my brain kind of chewing on a bone and all of us enjoying ourselves kind of intellectually but it's not really the point and there is nothing really to solve or to do. Yeah, what, what do you think about this idea of having a conversation that's kind of me peppering you with questions and um, producing a podcast that's all around this idea that there's some big looming problem that we have to solve. Well, it is unnatural in many ways, the uh, constant obsession with questions and answers that we have in, in modernity. <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's a kind of, uh, yeah, truncation of the human condition uh, along with a lot of other things that we do (laughs) but we seem to be stuck in it at this point and there's a lot of need for bridging medicines in this time you know we're moving from a an age to a different age and uh, the age of modernity is coming to an end and there's lots of ways we're going to have to uh, kind of stumble our way through to something potentially wiser and uh, questions and answers may well be one of those bridging medicines and uh, that's how we do things we discuss and dialogue and uh, there are other ways but we don't have the skills to inhabit those other ways just yet so yeah having a chat about the uh, challenges of the world and some of the problems and maybe trying to, to ground in some more complex responses to predicaments rather than simplistic solutions, I think is probably quite a useful thing to do. And yeah, I guess I would say that the bigger the problem, uh, the smaller the response that's required. Or in other words, when times are urgent, urgent, it's best to slow down. Uh, It's a different way of putting the same thing. And that uh, we can be lured into this... um, sense of uh, reproducing the predicaments by using the same, the sort of, by reproducing the predicaments by kind of using the same responses that got us into the mess in the first place. So it is, it is a, yeah, it, that's why this activism stuff comes up and, and action is, actionism versus activism and the sense of, I really do think that, that people uh, growing as 
not so much self-improvement, but maturing into eldering uh, as humans is uh, a very powerful response to, to global issues uh, rather than some sort of massive collective action in, in response. Uh, the small... It's not so much from little things, big things grow, but from little things, the cosmos is stitched together. I've got some brain seeping out my ears, which is a good sign of explosion. <laughs> yeah. Here come the explosions. <laughs> I actually have a bunch of things written down uh, that I've read on your, your Facebook over the last little while that I want to ask you about a bit later because it's just I just love the the waking the waking up that happens when you say something like the bigger the problem the smaller the response. I love that. Yeah. It feels sometimes the most absurd things feel the truest to me. Yes, yes, the power of paradox I think is part of that and because the, the law of non-contradiction is one of those other other modernity laws that we we need to question and um it's in those contradictions that really we have those brain leaks that help us to become more than we imagined ourselves to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, you did mention eldering and you also mentioned the bridging medicines, which I read I think on Victoria's bio on the Anamkara website and those yep. two things bring me into this next part of the conversation that I'm, I'm really really excited to to talk with you about yin which is anamkara the place you call home but mm. i would really love you to describe what that is and the intention for that that life you're creating there yeah it's a what we call a homestead which is a bit of a american term but it's a it's a place in the yarra valley east of of melbourne or nam and uh we're trying to form community here yeah a community that's really about uh, that's held together through four pillars which are really just practices of being togetherness. So we talk about the need to work, to eat, to play and to pray together. And by pray we mean we value the spiritual, uh, the sacred, the holy uh, here at Anamkara and we think that that's an intrinsic aspect of being human. And that humans really just get a lot of joy out of collective activity together. And so we want to have a place where people are welcome to come and, and try it out for a bit or stay for longer. We're open to more people living here. And, um, you know, we just do this homesteading sort of stuff, growing vegetables, want to get some animals. And, um yeah, we're trying to become more self self sufficient in terms of our meeting our needs very locally, and we have a sort of a, an unusual fusion of traditions at Anamkara. So Anamkara is a term from Irish Gaelic that that means soul friend, and that's the the sense of the place is meant to be a deepening of kinship. We're very big on kinship and relationality. So we, we mix a kind of Gaelic traditions, Celtic traditions with indigenous perspectives and practices and also with Vedic practices, um, 
and perspectives from uh, southern India in the in the karmic and the tantric kind of uh, yogic traditions. So it's a bit it's a bit probably quite unique in that way in that mix of three things. Yeah, I, I love the core practices and when you mentioned prayer, I was listening to a conversation uh, yesterday with Merlin Sheldrake, the mm. um, the entangled life guy, and he was talking about I think it was David Abr- Abrams. Um, to put a quote within a quote, uh, he was saying that his version of prayer is just addressing the world directly, a direct address to the more than human world rather than talking about it, talking about what we know about nature and um, keeping it in the third person. So I wonder what you mean when you talk about prayer. It's a, it's a combination of ritual and ceremony where we connect with gratitude and reverence and grace and awe at the uh, wonderment of the of the world, and so it is a a seeking of direct connection with the many beings and entities and spirits and so forth that uh, creatures as well that uh, live with us that are our kin and that are allow us to be and to continue to exist and also that uh, we are in a relationship of gift giving with with them and they are with us and uh, yeah it's very much a um, direct embodied kind of tangible sense of uh, connecting with the material world uh, as a spiritual dimension of life yeah in a lot of indigenous traditions we we kind of we we're what's philosophically called non-dual. You know, we don't feel like there's mind and matter, or there's spirits and substance. It's all it's all enmeshed and entangled together. And um, so, country is is a vast spiritual, many-faceted spiritual being. And uh, you know, our traditions of fire ceremonies and. Uh, giving thanks of various sorts um, and asking permission and having conversations with many living beings around us as we go about our day is uh, really about that coming back to a sense of home, the home of the, of the human species as a, just a part of the web of life, not somehow severed from our, from our birthright. If you're really busy and you're harvesting a salad, do you ask the rocket if it's okay to take some or are there times you're just too busy to engage in that consent gaining phase? Yeah, definitely. I I still suffer from the kind of uh, squeezed sense of time that is characteristic of modernity, so it's... Uh, a lot of the stuff we do at Animakara is very uh, aspirational. We're we're on a journey of uh, getting better at stuff, and we make plenty of mistakes and forget to do things along the way. How many people can you host at one time? Well, we've only had a half dozen or so at once, but uh, we've only been here a couple of months. But uh, we could we could have twelve or somewhat more and that's uh, our vision is to have a smallish community of maybe 12 to 15 people 
most of whom are, are kind of um, living here on an ongoing basis and a, a certain amount of flow in and out as well is really good for communities of uh, visitors staying for shortish amounts of time. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I was really interested to read about the steps involved in becoming a resident and the quote that you um expressed on your website being that heaven can quickly become hell in terms of communal living and that is definitely a trope in intentional communities that they're dysfunctional and descend into chaos and ultimately fail so I'd love to hear a little bit more about at least the um, the steps in the process that you have in terms of people coming in and then maybe we can talk more about the way you make decisions as well. Another quote I saw recently from another community was living with others close, closely in communal settings is, is the best and the worst thing about this place. <laughs> yeah, and I, I get what they're saying. It's, uh, and, and the dysfunctionality of communities is really just an intensified version of the dysfunctionality of modern societies. It's just that modern societies are very... Um, separate and um, people uh, don't live very close in with each other. We have nuclear families and even a lot of single people households and this whole business of living in separate houses in very small numbers is uh, is very new for humans and quite strange. It doesn't really work that well for us. It's one of the reasons we have an epidemic of, of loneliness in our, in our society. So around here... Uh, at Anamkara, we're, we're keen to kind of um, cultivate a sense of vulnerability, really, with each other and, a, and authenticity. And we build a, the trust that's needed to make that safe enough for people to lean into. We want to hear how people actually feel. We don't want, we want to get beneath layers of, I guess, um, self presentation and and fear of saying the wrong thing and of not being able to be expressive of your own uh, moods and desires and longings and undulations of emotion through a day. Uh, so it's a, a context to cultivate that sense. And we have circles, um, sharing circles regularly every day, a small one and a larger one every week where people can really just feel heard and listened to in a way that is not just about that moment. It carries through to other parts where we we really want to um, have a lot of care and kindness for where people are at and uh, to give people a chance to, I guess, breathe uh, a little more deeply than we get to in modernity, in and out beings being shared through through that breath in one place and so we we intermingle and we create kin with each other and we want to have a place where people can be themselves and and to become more aware of where they're at and to become more able to perceive the impacts we have on each other as we as we go through these struggles of coming to terms with wounds and shadow and trauma and um, 
yeah, it's a it's a process of building containers and uh, collectively and learning to mature together and enter that that place of eldering that I mentioned before. Mm. I mean, there's obviously going to be times, if not already, where people aren't a fit for Anamkara. What kind of person wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be appropriate in your kinship group and community well we're really just interested in people who want to be um brave enough and courageous enough to be to be real you know and that it's not we're not we're not a sort of uh a peace and light uh 24 7 oming sort of place you know you come here you can scream you can get angry you can be grumpy you can get upset you can lose your shit and the point is we come back. We come back into relation. We come back into kinship. We talk. We give space. We do the kind of caring, indirect sort of holding. Um, we have people's backs rather than backing each other up. And that means we allow ourselves to be wrong. We allow others to be wrong. And we come back in. It's, I guess it's the opposite of the antithesis of cancel culture is what we have here. So if people are unable to lean into authenticity and vulnerability and realness over time, not straight away, then they probably won't be a good fit. And that's okay. We understand that's a really difficult thing to do and um, not something that's encouraged by modernity, which is more about your fake surface level, fake surface level veneers of, of humanity. Yeah, you mentioned a few other things that you look for in prospective residents being willingness to delve into shadow, which you, you kind of touched on there, and also a commitment to embodying the principles and practices of decolonisation and Indigenous perspectives. Uh, so the shadow is kind of the one word for the kind of wounds we receive in modernity through, through the living out of our living in ways that don't fit with our our natural tendencies as humans. You know, humans are a species among others and, you know, if you're a dog, you live in a certain way. If you're an octopus or an elephant, you live in a certain way. Humans have that too. We have a lot of capacity and, and flexibility, but there are ways that are healthy for us. And so, you know, the way that we may have been parented or been affected by institutions like schooling and so forth, that that wounds us, you know, and we we get these uh, these traumas that live in the body, and so we're keen to help people metabolize and process and compost those triggers and traumas that are really um, constrain uh, us being able to be our fullest selves, I guess. I would say, a kind of, a, they're, they're like ropes around our our vastness that that distort us in different ways. So, you know, we want people to lean into those things and over time, you know, it's a slow process, and, and start to recognise when we are triggered by things that are more about our past than our present and how we can basically come more fully into the present moment uh, instead of having to be constantly dragged into the past. So that's the um, shadow stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, 
when we say we want people to be open and embody decolonisation and Indigenous perspectives, that's kind of what we're talking about. We're just talking about recognising that there is a lot of toxicity in, the, in modern cultures, once again, over time, becoming more aware of those and understanding that there are other ways to do things uh, that don't involve, you know, intense competition, very close guardedness and standoffishness that don't involve shame and blame and guilt and uh, criticism and judgment and condemnation. There are ways to live communally that are more nourishing, that places where flourishing can happen for humans. And as I said, where we can just kind of ground and lean in and uh, be supported by others who are going through the same journey together. And so it's not some sort of abstract idea of you must, you know, sign a contract about your commitment to decolonisation. It's just an understanding that we are we're trying to do things in, in different ways that are, are more in, a, in alignment with the way our Indigenous ancestors from our different lineages would have, uh, would have lived life. And we think that those ways of living are uh, healthier and uh, create more thriving than a lot of stuff that happens in modernity. We're not, we don't have any of those. Uh, people keep asking me about you know, how long the policy manual is going to be and the, and the, the, the sort of uh, agreements that people have to sign. We, we don't do any of that stuff because we're very hard and gut-based and we want to come from those places of intuition and attunement and, uh, and sensing into each other and, and to allow that kind of um, emergent culture to be guided by inspiration from our ancestors, essentially. Mm. Yeah, I'm thinking about the eldering piece and this process you're describing is something that takes a lot more maturity and makes me feel like I've got to really go down pretty deeply to access a well of wisdom that I haven't obviously been um, gifted by my by the current culture. So how does eldering play a role at Anamkara? And also to, I think you mentioned that in tandem with the sociocracy model of decision-making, mm. um, which one kind of has more weight or is there a hierarchy there? How do things get done and agreed upon? Yeah, yeah. Well, it gets harder as more and more people arrive. Uh, so we're starting easy, which is good. But- <laughs> Sociocracy is really just a, a model of um, more of a, an anarchist model of decision making where people uh, make decisions kind of collectively and in a kind of consensus based model, but they talk a bit more about what they call consent in sociocracy. Essentially, it's important to uh, explain what consensus means in these kind of more anarchist models. And it's, it's often more about not necessarily the enthusiastic yes that we hear somewhat about these days, but more about can you live with that decision or do you have strong objections to it? And the reason for that is because, you know, otherwise one person could stop a decision among a 100 if you don't have a sense of that maturity to go, look, I don't really like this idea very much, but I don't feel that it's going to be 
particularly dangerous or damaging, so I'll just go, yeah, fine, I'm not going to block that. That's the sort of idea that sociocracy comes up with. And in bigger organisations, there's sort of semi-autonomous circles of decision-making that have overlapping members, and so people get on with stuff in a certain uh, focus on particular themes or topics um, that um, means that things can happen faster without everybody making decisions about everything. And sometimes there's a sense of um, people make decisions about things that, uh, to the extent that it affects them. So you let you let things happen which don't affect you as much, and you you weigh in on others that do. So we we like that idea of consensus consent. Uh, decision-making that affects you type of stuff. Um, but we also think that elders are really important and um, in Indigenous cultures, elders are not people that you take orders from but who it's good to take advice and listen to. And so elders are people who offer a sort of compass to others. Um, they serve without needing to be sort of recognised or celebrated for that. And they're just good at channeling wise responses from the cosmos, more or less. So, and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a familiarity with the complexity of, of life and the kind of ripple effects that can happen from decisions, not just the immediate effects of those. So we say that we have a sort of a sociocracy model with eldering because Sometimes it just makes sense to recognise the wisdom in others and not have this modern tendency to want to equalise everything. So to give you an example, I've been going through recently in the last... I seem to have emerged, but um, in recent weeks I've been going through some pretty intense kind of shadow processing work. Trauma uh, has arisen and has made itself known and has affected the way that I flow through the world and I've had to deal with it. But in that process, I've deferred to my partner, Victoria, and her wisdom about how to do things and how to make dis well, decisions about things and ways of doing things because I didn't feel like I was in a good place to contribute. And because of the place I was in, I felt resistance and resentment towards that that kind of um, relinquishment of power at the same time as knowing that was the best thing to do for those weeks. And so that is the sense of eldering that we're trying to get at. Elders are people that you can trust to make good decisions and um, do things well without allowing their ego to get the better of them in in what they do. So it's not necessarily tethered to their numerical age? No, no. Eldering is something that usually takes some time to do but can be can occur in, the, in people who are very young and more often in people who are middle-aged to, to older than middle-aged, yeah. So being on a homestead, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to keep that ship sailing and you also offer an exchange program where people can can labour in exchange for their accommodation and um, all the other gifts that they would have access to at Anamkara. And you also mentioned too the joy um, of human endeavour together. 
So I want to ask you about work and see if you can explode our assumptions about work as well, because I know that you take some cues from the Fintorn intentional community in Scotland. And one of their core principles or practices is around, I think, like work as an act of love. And I've been thinking a lot about this lately in terms of like karma yoga and devoting myself to the task at hand. Like this morning, I was just raking for hours, raking leaves for fire hazard reduction. But I was thinking about that, that concept of karma yoga and why we have this definition of work as this a necessary evil to be completed as quickly as possible and then fly to Bali to, to recharge. How would you reframe our ideas around work? Well, yes, in primal or Indigenous cultures, work is um, not really a thing that people do separately from life. It's, you know, work-life balance doesn't make sense because work is just enfolded into life and uh, obviously you live not so much. You don't, you don't live to work, you work to live. But that work is a very um, sociable enterprise that only takes up a few hours of the day. And so we're very much into that. We we want to do kind of work of uh, pleasant intensity together, mostly, that you need to run a homestead, but to do that in a way that is really more about the collective joy of of uh, shared shared space together. And activities are really great for that. So that's the... That's the, the work, what we call the work part of being together and we have the, the praying or the spiritual stuff and playing is also, you know, playing games or swimming together in the dam or what have you um, is an important part of that. So a typical day would be, you know, some yoga, some meditation practice, a circling, a bit of work and then some morning tea, a bit more work, then some lunch and then a bit more work and some afternoon tea, and then after that a bit more work and some dinner. So it's kind of like a lot of breaking up, and meals are really important. So when we say one of the pillars is eating together, that's because um, of that need to... It's another communal activity we can do together. (sighs) Apparently we have some noise in the background now. Can you hear that? Yeah, that's nice. It's a little cruisy little soundtrack happening. That's all good. I had a big rant last week at the opening in the opening part of the episode about how lengths we go to to try and scrub our audio clean from any trappings of, you know, the location it was yes. recorded or the I'm people who were around and but then I was like, "Oh shit, sometimes my audio is too too quiet. There's not enough happening, so bring on the the background noise," I say. Good. Yeah, a bit of background noise is good. <laughs> but does that, does that answer your question that you asked? Yeah, the, the work, I, I love that idea of it being enfolded into the everything of living. I think that's a really beautiful yeah. way of putting it. I mean, I still do think, yeah, but then so many of us have to go to these jobs and how do we find the, the meaning and the, the joy and any semblance of sacredness in these bullshit jobs? Yeah, yeah, it's hard and that's the, the balance that we're trying to find at uh, Anamkara is, you know, we want people to mostly be here, but we understand that there's work in the outside world that's required as well for financial purposes. And, uh, yeah, we call we call the work around here 
karma yoga, which is, you know, sort of means love in action, uh, in another way of putting it. And, uh, yeah, and that includes all of that stuff. So drawing from the Finhorn Foundation approach, you know, if people, um, when we talk about work at the beginning of days, we talk about intentions, I intend to do this or that. And we say that because if you change your mind, that's fine, you know. You're the, one of the ways of being primal is to be in touch with your needs and your your desires and where you're, you're being pulled by the cosmos during a, during a typical day. You're being invited. So, yeah, and being if you're sick for a day, that's your karma yoga too. That's your love and action is to care for yourself and, and rest. And so it's, uh, it's an openness to agility and flexibility in what, what work and a broad definition of what work is. You know, our discussions that we have about Indigenous perspectives of an evening, that's, a, that's work as well. Brain, brain food, food for the brain. Yeah, I asked Dave last week or a couple of weeks ago about what, he, what his response to someone in a setting like this where we are very much reliant on our bodies and our physical capacity to turn the compost pile, to take the goats out, to mm. hoe the weeds, what happens when we don't have our physical ability if we get sick for a long time you know what what then well we just have to have uh enough people around to do the work that does need that sort of physicality as part of it and there's there's many other things people can do of course but it is a balance a communal level balance of capacities um along with um responsibilities for provisioning people's needs, yeah. And so it's one of those bridging medicines again and it's going to be tricky because um, we have been very much impacted by modern ways of living. They've diminished our capacities. We're, We're sicker and more feeble and less able, less fit, less... Um strength even in our muscles than than primal peoples had and so and at the same time we don't have those skills to sustain ourselves either so we it's going to be hard these bridging medicines these bridging times these transition periods are the tough the tough times of trying to balance those uh, metamorphosizing of of ourselves along with our society as it also changes quite rapidly. So there's no easy answer to that question. Mm-hmm. But all I can I say is that, as much. Yeah. All I can say is that people do better in, in community. So that's really yeah. yeah. And the kinship that comes from actually intermingling and caring for others uh, more intensively in a in a place. And and being being in relation to country uh, is all part of that. They're more than human communities, is what I'm saying. Uh, that I'm that I'm speaking of. Yeah. Yeah, and it, yeah, that question is in no way loaded with the idea that people who don't, who aren't strong, aren't able to contribute. It's more just that reality of when you are in a in closer contact with your life support systems and tending them using your arms and legs and your muscles. 
Mm. Um, how does that then, yeah, what is that kind of redistribution and re-niching of people? Um, and I really love, I don't know if you've come across Sophie Strand and mm. her work, yeah, and how she draws these remarkable examples from nature around entities, organisms that actually kind of take seemingly take without giving something back which because we're really into this idea of reciprocity at the moment which is still this kind of equalizing force this give and take um this horizontal kind of way of relating but yeah she highlights those examples where a mushroom is just kind of seemingly being fed a bunch of sugars and not really giving anything back and Mm. uh it draws attention to yeah those times that we might just need to be someone to chew our food for us (laughs) Yeah, yeah, without shame. I, I I know Sophie's work. It's it's wonderful, and I think that there is a problem with the reciprocity kind of paradigm. And people talk about give and take, or give and receive. But I think probably better is to talk about gifting and borrowing, because we're never taking these things to keep for very long. Even our own bodies will be composted, uh, and will become the home of worms soon enough. Mm, that really changes things when I think of my body as a borrowed a borrowed being. I really hope there's not a, a large fee, like a library <laughs> fee for a, a late return. It's a different sort of borrowing to the capitalist idea, yeah. It's a, <laughs> yeah. Uh, something I really love that you shared recently, Yin, um, I wanted to – to bring to this conversation and see if you might be able to speak a little bit more on it because it encapsulates a few things that I've heard from you over the years that I just I just love as phrases and, and words to kind of plant into our consciousness. But you said that modernity does not entail an excess but a lack of soft fascination, appreciation or eroticism, sensuality, intensity, desire and pleasure, including pleasurable restraint and I think that is so beautiful and there's so much in that and I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I guess there's a sort of um, impression in some circles that that there's been too much in modernity, too much of, uh, I guess you could say, hedonism or excess or a sense of partying like a uh, some people have described petro-modernity, modernity of the fossil fuels as a kind of a um, an all-you-can-eat banquet or a, 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 an orgy that's gone on for too long. And I think that's, that's misleading because I feel like there's a sense that we're having such a wonderful time and using up our resources faster than they can be renewed when, in fact, we're having an absolute shit time by and large whilst also using up all the resources that can't be renewed at that, at that pace. Perhaps a very small number of people are having a lovely time, but it's not, it's not actually, modernity is not a place of, of pleasure and collective joy. How often do people, you know, feast and uh, go to fancy dress parties and put on impromptu kind of um, impro, improvised theatre or sing together or dance together or do ceremonies and rituals together. It's, it's, it's rare. So it's not actually – it's a place of generally a place of immiseration and that's why I talk about the difference between 
privilege and benefit. I feel there's a lot of people who understand the notion that, you know, some elements of our society are privileged, they're billionaires, they have the super yachts and so forth, and that, you know, super yachts are probably fun. I don't know. I've never been on one. But I don't think anybody actually benefits from modernity in the sense that their lives would be more nourishing, more vivid, more vital, more visceral, more thriving if we lived as primal peoples have lived. And that includes everybody up to the most powerful, the richest. They're still not actually having that much fun. And and the, the pleasure of life is something that's best experienced in those more close-knit kind of relational kinship contexts where it becomes about kind of the um, the eros of of loving the world in a kind of sensual erotic way that's that's not the hyper focused sense of um, sexual pleasure that's that's the most um, celebrated in modernity and and so that's what I mean when I talk about let's get real about what modernity is it's not actually that one wonderful anyway it's not like we've found something wonderful and then just have to wrap ourselves on the knuckle and say that's enough of that now you've gone partied for too long it's just the wrong way to go about the whole the whole shebang yeah yeah that's so perfect <laughs> mm. and so what do you think the future holds for us humans well all humans are pretty much in the same uh, I won't say the same boat but we're in the same bay let's say the same kind of uh, coastal inlets and um, some are, some of us are in super yachts and some are, are swimming with uh, weights around their their legs but uh, it's one place and the place is uh, it's a changing age, I think, and uh, modernity is coming to an end and we will go back, not to do exactly how it's ever been, but uh, to similar ways of living that are, are more relocalised, hopefully that I, I, I can draw from the wisdoms of our ancestors in terms of those ways of living, being, knowing and doing and relating and perceiving that are more conducive to well-being and... Um, the transition period will be very difficult and, uh, yeah, it's that ending of worlds, apocalypse type of stuff. Apocalypse also means to uncover and, and unveil. So we, we have a lot to learn from that unveiling of, of things as they are. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be tough and hopefully on the other side that, that, that more local way of living will be something people can do well uh, in a way that creates that flourishing life for not just for humans but for all the other life forms that we that are inviting us into kinship with them and that we may be able to learn to listen to their invitations as the power of modernity wanes and the system crumbles around us. And what kind of skills do you think we need to get through those rocky times? Well, it's great to have practical skills, you know, uh, gardening and and hunting and building and tailoring clothes and so forth. Those are good, definitely good skills to have. But I would say those hard skills are actually eclipsed by the soft skills that we need of engagement and attuning, 
and listening and communicating and caring and, and loving other other creaturely aspects of the cosmos. So to me the soft skills are more important. And when you come together in a community where you can hold those complexities of relationships, you can you can quickly learn some of the the hard skills through sharing with each other. So essentially it's about how good it is to how much better it is to kind of have the have groups of people come together and live together and uh, you need those so-called soft skills to make that work yeah Mm. is there anything that you would point people in the direction of whether that's a book or a workshop or a song or a color that maybe starts them on the path of understanding some of these concepts that we've uh, aired today something you're particularly loving at the moment uh, you could always uh, find out some more specific stuff on our NMKARA website, of course, but um, there are some really good books out there and I think your mention of David Abrams is important and, and his book um, Spell of the Sensuous is a, great, is a great book. One of the things we need to really connect with in these times is that is there is our grief so therefore it would be good to also read Francis Weller's book um, The Wild Edge of Sorrow is a really important book and uh, if you get through those uh, drop me a line and I'll send you some more books <laughs> what an invitation and what a conversation I feel really stoked on everything you've shared today and I can't wait to listen to it back multiple times and I'm just, yeah, really, really grateful that you didn't make me feel silly for some of the questions that I had on the tip of my tongue that feel very naive and just like a starting point but I also feel self-conscious about that sometimes. So thank you for, yeah, being really kind in your responses. It's a pleasure to talk to you and... uh one thing we didn't get to talk about which I think is very important and you just mentioned is the uh, the importance of uh, of silliness itself <laughs> how, how we need to be silly not in that way that you mentioned but that that sense of humor that um, clowning around that that lightness of being that doesn't take ourselves too seriously. These are the sort of things that help us to move with grace through the world and, uh, yeah, very much drawing from Indigenous traditions that that sense of the trickster, the trickster that makes the world. There's another book you could read. How, uh, I think, yeah, it's Trickster Creates the World, something like that. And... Um, yeah, it's so important and one of the other things that we don't do enough of, that uh, uncontrollable laughing till your sides hurt type of thing. Uh, we need more of that in modernity and in whatever bridging societies we, we're moving towards. Yeah, incontinence medicine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. Well, thanks so much, Ian. 
Thank you, Katie. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to Yin for gifting his time and energy to Resilience. And definitely get along to his activism and animism events if you're in or around Nam. It's all linked in the show notes. And be sure to get in touch if you have any questions or comments or haikus in response to today's episode. Thank you, thank you for those who leave Resilience reviews on iTunes and stars on Spotify. It's a really lovely gesture of support and lends a glow of legitimacy to this one-woman show. See you next Monday.